Welcome to episode 141 with my guest Susanna Brisk. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This well, this is weird how I I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, an hour or two of honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I mean, Christ, listen to me. You're in trouble. You're in trouble if you start taking what I what I say seriously. It is actually I have some good advice. Uh, show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's more like a it's not a doctor's office. Oh, I've gone way off track. Danger, Will Robinson. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. I should just stick to what I've been saying every time instead of trying to ad lib. I just get off track. Um, the website for this show is mentalpod.com. All kinds of good stuff there. You can read blogs by me, blogs by guest bloggers, um, and you can take a, fill out surveys, which, as you know, I love to read on the podcast. Uh, you can see how other people have filled out surveys. Uh, they're done anonymously, so people really spill their uh their, their inner lives onto these, and they're quite fascinating. And you can uh, support the show by uh, going to the website as well. Uh, not a lot of uh, surveys. That I'm, th- this show is going to be uh, light on surveys. I'm getting ready to head to Toronto. I'm actually recording this a couple of days ahead of time, even though it's being posted at the, the usual time. Really looking forward to doing the uh, group recording on Friday night and the live recording with Scott Thompson on Saturday night. If you want any more details about that, um, go to the website, mentalpod.com, and uh, there on the homepage is details about when and where and how to get tickets and et cetera, et cetera. Although the group recording, you don't need uh, tickets for. Uh, la, 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 la. Yeah, so uh, not a lot of uh, surveys on this on this episode. Let's get into it. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a a woman who calls herself Demink, and uh, she's in her 30s. About her depression, she writes, I am stumbling in a dream where the lights are dimming and I can't quite keep my eyes open. About her anxiety, I've lost control and I'm dying, going insane and letting everyone down all at the same time. Uh, About her codependency, I can't uh, wait to leave because it means, oh, I can't want to leave because it means I am stuck. with stupid old me. Man, that sounds pathetic. Uh, Being a sex crime victim, I hate my body for fooling men into stealing from me the experience of trusting my emotions, mind, and spirit with another person. That is heavy. That is really heavy. And I would take the blame off of yourself, though, by saying that you fooled men into stealing that from you. You had no part in them taking that from you. That was taken from you, so um, that would be that would me be me coming in with a red pen and uh, proofreading your pain. This is from the struggle in a sentence uh, survey, and this is filled out by L. She is between sixteen and nineteen. About her, I, I love when I get young listeners that are so articulate, and it usually seems to be um, young women just seem to be so much more articulate about their emotions than than guys at that age. Um, about her depression, she writes, my heart's attached to an anchor at the bottom of the sea. And then why why is your um, the teenage girl poetry always so horrible? Yet when they do the struggle in a sentence, it's so beautiful. 
Maybe I just didn't. Uh, maybe I'm not reading the right uh, teenage girl poetry. Uh, about her anxiety, needles pricking into every pore. About her alcoholism and drug addiction, euphoria in the form of liquid or smoke. The crashes are catastrophic. About her bulimia, filling with emotion only to be emptied to a husk. About her anorexia, abstinence, I am nothing, I need nothing, a permanent guilt for existing. And about her codependency, the feeling of helplessness is overwhelming and shameful, but it outweighs my pride in depending on others. Thank you for that, L. And uh, and this is from M, um, same survey. Uh, she's in her 20s, and she writes about her uh, depression. It feels like everything I am looking at and everyone I am talking to is on the other side of a thick plate of glass. It's there, but it's distant and unreachable. That is how I have always been dis- describing my depression and my alcoholism and drug addiction. That's what it feels like when it's bad. Yeah. Um, about her anxiety, I've lived with it for so long that its presence is comforting and its absence frightening. That I've never thought about the absence of anxiety being frightening. Um, and about her alcoholism and drug addiction, I love feeling as close to nothing as possible. I suppose this is where I should probably say something uh, pithy to, to, to kick us into the uh, the episode, but I don't have anything to say, so I'm going to lean on uh, Pema Chodron and uh, read uh, just a quote from her book, When Things Fall Apart. At the root of all the harm we cause is ignorance. Through meditation, that's what we begin to undo. If we see that we have no mindfulness, that we rarely refrain, that we have little well-being, that is not confusion, that's the beginning of clarity. As the moments of our lives go by, our ability ability to be deaf, dumb, and blind just doesn't work so well anymore. Rather than making us more uptight, interestingly enough, this process liberates us. This is the liberation that naturally arises when we are completely here without anxiety about imperfection. Every human being has weird thoughts going through their head. Oh, God, it's so embarrassing. I'm afraid I'll never get another job again. That I will die and will have not been special. My brain has the gift of seeing the terrible. A million-pound tourniquet being turned against my chest that was constant. Then I started sabotaging my own career. Wanting to die and... To stop him from feeling any joy. (laughs) That is... Very uncomfortable in my own body. I ended up becoming a male prostitute. And what I became was an animal. They took away my shoelaces. I became chaos. Like it hurts. I just want to go. I just want to leave. You have no idea what a small part of your life this is. If you go to a support group, it's like creating a family that you didn't have. I mean, life is one percent event. My body was abused. Ninety-nine percent judgment about that event. But they couldn't touch the best parts of me. But the world is a little bit wounding. It's also glorious. It does always get better. It really does. I'm here with Susanna Brisk, who I just met for the for the first time. We corresponded via email, um, and I'm not really sure where to begin. There's so much from your life, um, and I've just gotten the broad strokes of it from from reading uh, about you. I'm not really sure where to begin. So I guess let's let's start from the the beginning. You're you're uh, how old? If you roughly, oh, ouch, roughly, is that where we're starting? Yeah. I can't imagine where we're going to go if we yeah. start there. I'm 39. Okay, I'm actually going to start lying about my age next year, but this okay. year I really am 39. Awesome. Well, then you're going to be 39 forever, so that's awesome for the next 10 years, and then yeah. I'll be 49 for the next 10. What's the the fear um, underneath 
people knowing your real age that you that you won't get work that you'll be judged what what I think I've probably just lived in Hollywood too long because there's definitely a stigma about women aging. I haven't done anything to myself yet, but um I think it's probably just from being an actress and a model when I was younger and it's probably left over from that. I mean, no one really gives a shit about anyone but themselves, so... <laughs> That's the bottom line. Yeah, it's kind of an irrational fear, as if anyone's going to be sitting at home taking notes on how old I am. I mean, have you ever said to yourself, oh, no, not that person, they just turned 40? No. <laughs> you know? But women, you know, we do have to deal with a little more stigma. I mean, look at, like, Sean Connery, and then all the love interests are, like, 25. It's kind of disgusting. Oh, yeah, the double standard is is, right. is pretty pretty gross. And my favorite, too, is the schlubby guy on the sitcom that has this smoking hot wife. Hot, hot size zero wife. Yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah. Um, So... You were born in uh, Europe, Estonia, Estonia, in the former Soviet Union. Uh, yeah, what was what was that like? So you got about what ten years of uh, living there. How, um, how long actually, was- I was three when I left, but I have a very good memory for some reason, a very good long term memory. So I remember a lot about it. But yeah, I grew up with these kind of. Um, communist intelligentsia parents actually intelligentsia and they hated communism that was their whole thing was like they were anti-communist and that's why we left did they know anybody that was pro-communist it just seems like everybody except the people in charge were miserable under communism no there were party members we had i had a great uncle who was part of the um communist party and he definitely was really gung-ho about communism um and he lived in australia and he would always complain about how everyone you know everyone was on the street and the way that they just let people down you know the government wouldn't take care of its people meanwhile he was living in like a, a projects kind of a thing like for free in a lovely apartment care of the government so it never really made in sense. australia yeah yeah. So, I mean, you can't say the projects exactly. It's more like the housing commission, public housing. And um they have unwaxed surfboards. That's In in Australia? That's, yeah, that's the that's the ghetto Let's of Australia <laughs> is where they can't afford wax. Well, that's why I had to leave cuz I'm not a surfer and I don't drink beer, so I, I want to give a shout out to our uh, our listeners in Australia. We have tremendous uh, support from our Australian listeners. Oh, a lot that's of donors. Great. I get a lot of emails from people down there, and uh, I just want to take a take a minute to to thank them for uh, for, for being so awesome. Hi, Aussies. Yeah. How are you? They're, they're, oh, that's they're because great. because you don't really get to talk about these things. In Australia, I think that there's a real, it's an English thing. It's a stiff upper lip kind of thing. And yeah, have a beer, mate. You'll be right. She'll be right. It's You don't talk about depression. You don't talk about mental illness. They're not topics like they are here. Well, certainly in Los Angeles, most people I know have a therapist. Most people have some kind of something going on and they're very open about it. But it's definitely not the case in Australia. And they have a very high suicide rate. Did you know that? One no, of the highest in the world. I did not. Yeah. That is one of the last places I would have guessed. I would have always thought, you know, the Nordic countries. That's right. But no, it's a, there is a high suicide rate. It's Japan, it's Australia, and I think it's Sweden. Wow. That are high. Yeah. So sad to think of a blonde person in a sauna uh, wanting to end it all. It's like, <laughs> if you could just see yourself through my eyes. 
Are you talking about an Australian or a Swedish person? Because the, the they Swedish could apply person. Yeah, for an either Australian one. too. Yeah, a lot I don't of blondes. Think, yeah, I don't think of saunas when I think of uh, Australia, though. So is that where you moved from Estonia to yeah. Australia? Yeah, I grew up in Australia um, with these Russian parents, and I went to Orthodox Jewish school. And um, I was, uh, you know, picked on a lot for being Russian. And, and having red hair, I would imagine. Yeah, there's that. There's always that, yeah. And then you grow up and you're like, well... Now you try to get my color, bitches. <laughs> Excuse me, I forgot to plug my laptop in, so I was uh, just wandering over to go do that. That's okay. Um, by the way, we are in, this is our first recording in my new uh, my new digs, my new rented office, and so far so good. We were getting some audio noises, uh, some hums and crackles and pops before we started rolling, but so far, nothing yet. Um, Good. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Yeah, it's kind of bare in here. There's nothing on the walls. It kind of feels like you're face-to-face -face with your own demons. There's nothing to distract you. This, if you had to pick for a movie, a room where a businessman uh, at the end of his rope would shoot himself, <laughs> this is the room. But the table that we are recording on was the, the front tree uh, of my yard. And so I want, I feel like that brings a little bit of warmth and... Uh, a little bit of cheer. A little bit of cheer Maybe you it. could put a poster up of The Shining on the wall. <laughs> that might help cozy the place up a little. So tell me what it what what was your childhood like growing up in in Australia? So you were oh, it's fucking fantastic. Russian, you were you were a red haired Russian. Um, what was your your family dynamic like? Were you guys close? Was were you emotionally? What was the? Did you guys express emotions to each other? We expressed too much emotion. There's no shortage of emotion in my family. Everyone is very intense. And, you know, they're Jews and Russians, so everybody screams all the time. Even, you know, they're just talking, but they're screaming. Yes. And um, I, my grandmother, who did a lot of the job of raising me because a lot of um, children of these Russians who came out in the 70s were only children, and then they were raised by the grandmother. And my grandmother was borderline. I know that now, um, borderline personality disorder. But at the time, it was just like, she's very strange. Everybody knew Babushka was a little strange. and um, could, could turn on a dime. In a second, very mercurial. Um, and uh, she was very hard to predict. And she was kind of like up my ass all the time. You know what I mean? Like, yep. not literally, thank God, but um, she was... Uh, she was a force of nature. I mean, she never stopped. She only had one mode. She was manic. She drank six cups of coffee a day, massive cups with like six things of sugar in it. Wow. And she was obsessed with sugar. And she used to read Der Spiegel magazine, which is this German, German yeah. like S&M porn. Uh, yeah, random. Der Spiegel was? Oh, often, often featured. Yeah, there'd be a page open and there'd be some like weird photo shoot with like people in leather. And I'd be like, oh, that I don't understand. That's so funny. I never remember. We had a German deli across from me in Chicago and I took German in, in college. So I every once in a while I'd thumb through one of theirs. And all I remember is occasionally there were topless pictures. But I would, yeah. I would see if I could read anything in German. And I, of course, I never could. But yeah. I don't remember anything kind of kind of that. All uh, I remember is the s and pictures because yeah. I was just like oh what's that so did she would she come down ever or was it always up no she was always up and that's what I was trying to figure out for my mom years later I was like was she because I thought maybe she was bipolar because she was so manic and she was like no she never she never needed much sleep she very rarely even sat down 
and she never seemed to be depressed, but at the same time, she was always angry. There was always an mm -hmm. undercurrent of anger. And everything you did, if she didn't like what you did, the eyebrow would go up and she'd have this like collection of sounds that she made like, ah, ch ah, ch ah, like this, and um, sort of like your snap crackles that are happening on your podcast. <laughs> That's what she sounded like. And her, her hand would swipe at you. <laughs> Be like, Babushka, you look so good today. <laughs> it's like anything you said was just uh, not good enough. It was not good enough. Was she ever pleased by anything? No. No. Oh, what she sad. would sit she would sit at family gatherings and be like, What is this all for? What is this? What is this for? What a waste of time. I mean, you just you couldn't please her. Did you ever turn the switch off trying to please her? I've still, I still haven't. I don't think she's dead long gone. <laughs> I'm still trying to please her. Do you feel like um, you have her voice kind of inside you, oh, guiding was, you sometimes? Probably, yeah. I mean, I feel her with me sometimes. I had a car accident um, about a year ago, and I felt her there when I survived it. So maybe... Um, so a positive she, thing. She was taking care of me. Yeah, and I loved her. I mean, I adored her. She was... I saw her more than I saw my parents because my parents were immigrants struggling and working all the time. And all I wanted to do was be with my parents. And I really didn't get to be with my parents much. Uh, my parent, uh, my father was starting his jewelry business. He worked all the time. He was kind of angry all the time. I always felt like I was in the way. And my mother, my mother's just a character. My mother has been um, swearing since I was like seven years old in Russian. And... Um, it would be the kind of thing where she was, there's an episode in my book, actually, she was um, washing the floor in the kitchen. And I was like, can I help you, mommy? I want to help you. And she's like, oh, fuck off. I don't, I don't need your help. You know, it was like that. It was just very intense. And I didn't really understand it. I would just kind of run to my room and cry a lot. There, there is a, uh, a team in my hockey league that is 90% Russian. Uh -huh. And if they get down by one goal... They just start attacking each other. Yeah. You can hear them from across the ice just <laughs> screaming at each other. Yeah. And I've always wondered, is is that just them or is that like a, a cultural thing? It's genetic and cultural. It's in our blood to be down on ourselves and on each other. I mean, failure is not an option. It's 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 just the culture. It's like it's like you wean it from your mother's breast kind of thing. It's just in there. Do you ever wonder what do you think it's because of all the wars and the dictatorships and the the abuse of power over yeah. the, over the centuries in Russia that just kind of ingrains that collective suffering? I think so. And then when you have the Jewish thing on top of it, you've oh, just yeah. got a very traumatized people. And um, it's just in the blood. It just becomes like passed on through the generations, this kind of soul darkness. I mean, I don't think that your real soul is actually dark. I think that everyone has like a light inside them, but... Just above that, there's a little layer yeah. of uh, nothing's really going to work out. Yeah. I mean, if that was the ethos, it was just like, life will fuck you. Deal with it. That, and it is such a poisonous way to go to go through life. So completely understandable, but it's such a... It's like we, we get one shot at the buffet. Do we really want to just sit and complain about the food and yeah. say, eventually, this is going to come out in the form of a shit? Yeah. <laughs> You, know? you don't want to focus on the whole toilet part of it. You want to enjoy the food. Yeah. Yeah. But it's so hard. Easier said than done. It's true. Yes. So um, you're you're around your, you could call her your babushka? Babushka. Babushka. Mm -hmm. And she's kind of, what What do you think you've, 
you've gotten from your relationship with her that has benefited you? That's a very good question. She used to bring me books and she encouraged me having like a stamp collection. She taught me how to knit. She taught me how to play the piano. She spoke eight languages fluently. I speak five. Yep. I'm like a slouch in my family. I mean, they're all just geniuses. They're all brilliant. So, What languages did she speak? Obviously, she Russian. She spoke Russian. Well, in Estonia, you spoke Russian, German, and Estonian. And then on top of that, she'd picked up, you know, French, um, Yiddish. Uh, English. English, that's right, her English. And let me think. I'm, I haven't oh, thought enough. about this. I think she speaks, she spoke uh, maybe Hungarian and... Maybe, um, what am I missing? A little bit of Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, she was she was just amazing. Listen and she's me. had a, a perfect pitch. She could play the piano and she taught me piano and she gave me, genetically, I have a, a talent for playing the piano. So I think it's kind of more the genetics of, um, you know. She must being, have been annoyed by people that couldn't keep up with her. Oh, because- she couldn't stand people. She couldn't stand people anyway. She was just the complete isolationist she had these um decades long correspondences with people but she couldn't stay friends with somebody if you live nearby she had a best friend called madame waltman and they were always fighting they were always not talking to each other because it was too close like i said in my book she would have loved facebook because it was like the perfect amount of intimacy for her she just couldn't handle she didn't suffer fools and to her everybody was a fool so um I mean, I kind of think she was probably suffering, but my mother doesn't think that she was suffering. She just thinks that she was like the only person like who ever lived like that on the planet. But that's not possible. Everybody is in some way like somebody else. And it took me decades to figure out that she was borderline because of that, because my mother was always like, well, your grandmother, you know, she was just she was singular and there's no one ever been like her. When did she pass? Um, About. My son was, is now eight, and it was right after he was born. How many kids do you have? I have two kids. They're eight and nine. They're boys, and they drive me insane. Yeah. And I really hope they're not mentally ill. That's basically did, my did whole... Did you have any brothers thing. growing up? No, oh, no, no siblings. So you are getting an education. Nothing. You were an only kid? Yeah, totally. Only child. Oh, yeah. My God. And I don't understand boys. I don't understand anything about it. I finally actually bought myself a Barbie townhouse because I just gave up on being able to play with dolls because they're all, they're so, they're such boys. I mean, they're always, they're best friends and then they're punching each other a minute later. And, you know, some moms are just, oh, it's all right. It's all right, honey. We'll let them sort it out. But I it's it's very troubling for me because I don't understand boys. I understand men more, but I don't understand boys. You know how girls um, will like hold hands yeah. and and you talk know talk to each other, talk and to stuff. each other. Yeah, boys' way of doing that is wrestling and punching and getting into trouble. Oh, that is how we express. That's how we find our place in the world, and that's that's basically how. At least for me, that's what, how I related to my friends, was tackling each other, playing jokes on each other, um, daring each other, um, doing things that were gross, 
to make each other laugh. Yeah. That, that's, that's how, cause we, you know, you wouldn't grab your buddy's hand and go, I just feel really close to you. You know, <laughs> it didn't, everybody would have piled on top of you and called you a fag and right. you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, wow. That's I so, got an education today. I really didn't, I really didn't understand that until this moment. Yeah, it's not a, it's not an, a, in, in, unless they start torturing animals and and bur- oh, right, burning yeah. shit down. No, my kids are not I, sociopaths. Then I no. think in my opinion, I mean, I don't know, I'm just I'm just a former stand-up comedian <laughs> that used to cook chicken, but in my opinion that that's that's totally normal. That's how I was, that's how all my friends were. Interesting. You, there was there was almost like a how far can we push things until there's blood yeah. and then pull back just a tiny bit. Right. So just know that that's that's inside them constantly. <laughs> how far can we push this until one of us bleeds? Oh god, what a nightmare. Yeah. And thus the trips to the emergency room. But eventually you know, they'll settle in be and interested. become protected. They'll be interested in girls. Oh, they are already. Well, that that takes some of the edge off. Yeah. Sometimes one of them will play with himself and he'll look right in my eyes. Look, mommy. <laughs> Seriously? I'm dead serious. I'm like, sweetie, do that on your own time. I don't want to shame him. I want him to be able to explore his yeah. body. But I'm just like, that's not for mommy, sweetie. Good for you. Do that in your bed. Good for you. Yeah. In a few years. Ew. Ew. I'm going to be changing those sheets. Uh, <laughs> kicking kicking the pillowcase to the, <laughs> to the laundry room. Um, th- that must be d- a tough thing for, for moms and, and dads to navigate when, when there is that burgeoning of their, of their sexuality that you don't, you don't want to shame them, but you also want them to know you don't want them well, it's to appropriate. To, yeah, you don't, you don't want, want them him to, taking his dick out in class for God's sake. Exactly, or at somebody else's house in right. front of the, you know that mom and right. him saying, "But my mom says it's not a problem." <laughs> That's right. Well, it's hard enough, I think, when you're mentally well, but when you have issues, it becomes everything just becomes more difficult because I feel like I I feel my kids' pain more and. When they're upset, it's taken me a long time and a shit ton of therapy to be just like, okay, he's upset right now and that's okay. Because I had suicidal ideation from when I was seven. I mean, I literally was seven years old and I remember wanting to kill myself. And um, and that was like 32 years ago I've had suicidal ideation. Do you still have it? Um, occasionally, yeah. It's actually been pretty good right now, but it's almost like I want to say, do it, just do it already. <laughs> like, <laughs> stop thinking about it. It's so funny because if somebody would see you in a coffee shop, they would be like, why can't I be that put together? She's got the, the gorgeous, curly auburn hair. She's statuesque. She's got, you know, two beautiful kids. Right. Yeah. You, but you just meet me for a couple of minutes and that whole illusion will slide away very quickly because I'm very open about my struggles i mean on my blog and even just when i meet people i'll i'll often just say they'll be like oh you're you seem happy today or something and i'll be like yeah i'm medicated yeah i'm correctly medicated you know i don't i don't want there to be a stigma about you know what we all go through it's just it doesn't seem fair to have to deal with that and then to have to hide it as well exactly yeah um so that's why i love what you're doing here oh thank you i do i appreciate that so let's talk. Go back to when you were seven, and okay. um, what do what do you think that was about the 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 suicidal ideation? What do you remember wanting to avoid or get rid of that that suicide would 
bring you? That's a very good question because I think it happened after my grandfather died and I wasn't allowed to go to the funeral because suddenly, I mean, you know, my dad's an atheist. These are not really Jewy Jews. We had traditional Judaism. It was mainly about the food. And suddenly they got so Jewy and so Orthodox and I couldn't go to the funeral. And I think that Why affected me. Why couldn't you go to the funeral? Because if you haven't had both parents one parent die, you're not supposed to hear the Kaddish if you're a kid. Mm. And again, this archaic law that they just randomly decided to follow when they would totally eat pork on, on Shabbat. <laughs> I mean, it did, they were totally not religious. And, um, and I went to school with religious kids. So I was always trying to get them to light candles and just trying to reconcile all of these worlds, I guess, and trying to figure out where I fit in. And, um, I just remember like being in my classroom and just putting my head on my desk and just thinking I want to die. Like the kids were picking on me. I was crying every day. And I don't know. I don't even know how I got it. But then I made these suicide pills, which um, I had a little Hello Kitty or a Bobby and Kate little plastic pencil holder. And I took my mom's uh, paracetamol, which is like Tylenol, like a little capsule, and I opened it and I crushed up some of her other pills. And they turned out to be birth control pills. So, um, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I thought she had cyanide in her in her bed uh, bathroom thing, but so I closed them up and I kept them for just in case. I mean, who does that at seven? Like, that's weird. And that's when people say to me, oh, America's over-medicated. Everyone's on medication. It's like, well, that's not really my problem because I know that I had a problem really early on because that is not normal. Common. But not normal. But not normal, maybe. Right. You know, um, so many people I know... At, if they didn't think about suicide at that age, they wanted to be with a different family. I mm. had that one where I just, oh, God, I so badly wanted to be raised by a different family. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it, and just going into fantasy, that, that was, was fantasy a, kind of a drug for you? As oh, a, absolutely. As a kid? Yeah, I love to read. And I was so caught up in this whole thing that I'm going to be an actress. I mean, even when I was really little, and I would draw billboards of myself, and I would play different characters. And, um, you know, so I'm 39. And that hasn't happened. <laughs> <laughs> but we plug on. <laughs> what, as you say that, what feelings? I just feel feelings? like I want to cry right now. Yeah. Why? Why? Because it's just, it's so funny to think that you get older and it, to have the same dream you had when you were four is kind of ridiculous in a sense, because how I've changed so much even in the last six months. Like, how can I be the same person I was when I was four? But um, I just think life is kind of a little bit of a, bait and switch to be honest what do you feel like was promised to you and what do you feel like you were given instead i just i don't think anybody really ever promised me anything because i didn't grow up with a great sense of entitlement because we didn't have very much but i think i thought i would be happy more consistently than i am even though I am at a baseline pretty content. I mean, I have to say that I'm better than I was a couple of years ago or 10 years ago. And the lows are less low. But 
I just feel life's like kind of a jib, you know, like everyone's like, oh, have kids. It's like, don't fucking have kids. Like, seriously, listen to me. Okay, <laughs> listen to my words. Do not have kids. It's not what it seems to be. It's a lot of shit work, housework. It's like, and not that I think I'm better than that. But you know what, I'm better than that. You know, it's like, what is this life that I have? Like, I just, I can't believe my life sometimes, honestly. And like you said, from the outside, it looks wonderful. I live in Malibu, for God's sake, Malibu, California. What's wrong with Malibu? Nothing. But it's like driving these kids to football and soccer. And I mean, really, is this it? Is this life? Parenting's the ultimate bait and switch. Well, what do you do to to feed yourself? Because if, if you don't have something other than driving the kids to soccer practice and cooking dinner or whatever it it, it is, mm-hmm. I mean, I would think it would be the rare person that could be completely fulfilled by that. Oh, there's lots of women in Malibu who are totally fulfilled by that. And they've had big lives and they're happy with what they've achieved. And they're on the PTA and they're volunteering and they're room mom this and parent mom that. But are, they, but are they really happy or are they just presenting it? Or, I mean, we'll never know. They're but. happier than I am. I mean, I write, you know, that's my thing. I write and I act and that makes me feel like it's okay. And even if I never make a living in this business, which it's been 22 years and I'm kind of tapping my watch going, okay. <laughs> um, and I know I've moved a lot of people and I have a lot of people who really appreciate my work. And... Um, but the creativity itself, the actual process, is what saves me, definitely. And sex. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of fucking. <laughs> Are you married? No, I'm separated. Yeah, so, so, 11 months. We were together 14 oh, no. years and married for 12. And I was married to someone who I'm sure that you know, because everybody in comedy knew him. And I became like sort of his wife as opposed to... You know, I was a stand-up comic for 12 years. I was obsessed with it. And then um, and I got on TV very early in Australia. And then I think I was kind of young and couldn't make take advantage of the opportunities like I could have. Um, but who knows all the reasons why things happen the way they do. And then I went to New York because I was like, I'm going to be a star. And then New York didn't care. And then uh, I met my husband. And it was really much more about me being his wife I felt like that overshadowed even my huge, way too big personality. It did overshadow it for many years. And uh, are you comfortable sharing who your ex-husband is? Um, I was married to Barry Katz. It's very easy to find out on Google, so I mean, okay. I may as well. Do you know Do you, you know Barry? Yeah, the manager? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he's doing a podcast now that's really successful. And With Jay Moore? Yeah. Actually, mm-hmm. he's doing his own podcast um, called Industry Standard. It's doing really well. Oh, good. Yeah, we're still really good friends. We live in the same house. It's kind of unusual. I wanted to do a reality show, but he's too private. I hate that. Um, Bravo were uh, interested in maybe doing a show with us because I live downstairs in the guest room next to the kids and he lives in the master. And we're just totally amicable. It's been 11 months and um, we're really good friends, and it's unusual. It's an unusual situation. We love each other. We're still family. What was it that drove you apart then? I don't want to go into that too much because I, I do want to safeguard his privacy. Say no more. Say no more. Um, but uh, let's just say I turned 35 and he turned 50. <laughs> mm-hmm. And 
I wanted one thing and he wanted to nap. <laughs> and so that really pushed us apart. Do you ever feel like there was an extra allure to him because he was powerful in comedy and you were trying to become powerful in comedy? I think it was probably about 10 to 20% of my attraction for him, but I was really in love. We were really in love. I mean, we have a very sentimental relationship. There are thousands and thousands of these greeting cards. They're in boxes now in his closet and mine are in the garage of, I love you. I live for you. My, you know, you saved my life. You're my world. And I think for him, at least, he got very stuck on the idea of the relationship more than the reality. And I think he went through a really hard time with my, you know, mood struggles. And I didn't really understand it until we were separated, what he went through. I mean, it's terrible to watch someone you love suffer. Yeah. Do you think he picked you because he's a fixer? Uh, yeah, I think he's a bit of a rescuer. Yeah. yeah. I think most managers... Are. Right. The ones that are successful yeah. have to be, you know, invigorated by putting out fires and yeah. soothing and comforting and taking a call at two totally. in the morning and, yeah. you know, telling people what they think they need to work on. Yeah. And, you know, this he's and, like the papa, you know, he's so paternal. He's like the father of the daddy of comedy. And for me, I mean, I worked out all my daddy issues. Let me just tell you that in being with him for 14 years, I have no daddy issues. I do not need to date any more older guys because I worked all of that out. I got all my soothing. I got all my, you know, my daddy stuff, my daddy attention. And, uh, you know, I get to keep that. So now you're looking to get some cougar on? <laughs> what do you mean looking to? I don't waste any time. Yeah. Come on, it's been 11 months. <laughs> So you're out there and you're you're dating or I'm, you're I'm uh, I'm uh, I'm seeing someone but I I see other people I see people okay I see so lots of you're people. you're sowing your oats your post your post marriage oats yeah and I sowed enough oats before I met him believe me I thought I'd had enough oats but apparently things change when you're older and um, yeah I'm having a good time. Oh, you know what that sound means. It's it's time to give our sponsor a little bit of love. And our sponsor for this episode is Daily Burn, the best fitness anywhere. Dailyburn.com. Go check out the website. Uh, they have a gazillion different workout videos. And what I think is really cool is how they streamlined it and how simple they make it to find what kind of video you want to work out to. And you can pick videos that require equipment um, or videos that don't require any equipment. Um, they have uh, Tabata, interval training, yoga, and uh, a, a huge variety. And what I really like is they also arrange them by length of workout. So if you only have 15 minutes to work out, you feel like yoga, you can just find the, the, the perfect one. It's easy to get to exactly the style of workout you want and the length of workout you want. And they also have uh, instructors. So if you have a favorite instructor, you can also uh, choose by uh, by instructor. Uh, the really cool thing, too, is you have uh, access to your workout from anywhere. Uh, you can connect across multiple devices like a Roku, iPad, iPhone. And pretty soon, they're also going to be able to do it uh, via PS3 and Xbox. Um, so if you guys would be so kind as to go to the specific page they have set up for my listeners... It's uh, dailyburn.com slash happy hour, and uh, you'll get your first 30 days free. So what, you got nothing to lose to go to go check it out. Again, uh, dailyburn.com slash happy hour. Daily Burn, the best fitness anywhere. 
there's so many things that I I want to to talk about. So I guess we're we'll just kind of take them as they come. Um, but I do want to go back and and talk about more stuff from your past. But um, I feel like I should be paying you for this 120 uh, an hour. I, I get as much I get as much out of it as as anybody I interview does. So I feel embarrassed when people say that because I, I'm worried that they think I think I'm a therapist, which is the furthest no, thing. No, I'm not that- getting a therapist vibe from you. Okay, no. good. And I've seen tons of shrinks. Okay. So I know a therapist when I see one. I can usually pick them before they've even told me they're a therapist. Although most good therapists are fucked up on some level. Right, and they go into it themselves, as you said, like the manager yeah. dynamic, is that they it'll distract them from their own problems. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or they'll have something to draw on. You know, I think the, the really good therapists have, because they've struggled, they know what their client is feeling. Right. And, and that empathy can't be faked. And when you when you share, you know, that you want to die with someone and you see the look in their eye. Yeah. That they, if not that they've been there, but they know what you're feeling. Absolutely. And you feel them. Yeah. Feel you. That's, that's you can't learn that in in school yeah it's huge it's huge i've actually been in a program i'm in a program right now for 18 months it's called the borderline personality initiative and um it's one group therapy a week and one individual therapy and i'm about halfway through and it's completely changed my life i mean i had no idea that i was borderline i had to find out from the internet which normally is not a very good way to diagnose yourself but when I read about borderlines, it was always from the point of view of other people looking at borderlines. And, you know, there's a big stigma with that. All therapists can't stand borderline patients. And therapists always loved me. I was like their favorite patient. I would always entertain them. And, um, you know, when if I left therapy, that'd be like, I just want to tell you, I'm really going to miss having you here. And I mean, I there were a lot of things that made it difficult to diagnose. But then I happened upon an article that was from the point of view of the borderline, which was attachment issues, massive... Severe abandonment. Abandonment, um, feeling uncentered, feeling like you have a completely changeable kind of identity that changes every day. It's very... It's very, it's kind of unpleasant. Who you have to present completely depends on the situation in front of you because right. you are not enough. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and you and you feel your emotions 11 out of, on a scale from 1 to 10. Absolutely. You feel them 11. And that's what, and you can't explain that to people. It's like, I'm not just sad. I'm not just irritable. It's like, it's like my skin is irritating me. Like you can't explain that to people or the mood swings where you suddenly, like I'd be with my kids and it was like the lights went out. And and I was just like, I have to go to bed. And I do believe that there were things in my life that were contributing to my unhappiness at the time that I had those kinds of mood swings. But it's just all magnified when you have this uh, disorder. And part of it is because my Soviet parents brought me up with this uh, Dr. Spock. And Dr. Spock, if you know, he was a child psychologist. My parents in, had all those books. Oh, my God. He did so much damage, that Spock. <laughs> and that bastard. And then he came back afterwards and said, you know, I was wrong about a lot of those theories. Well, what are we supposed to do now? <laughs> they told 
Dr. Spock told them, don't pick up a baby when they cry and let them cry themselves to sleep. And I believe that's when my attachment issues started because my mother would stand outside the door crying, not coming to pick me up. And you can't do that to a baby. Like they form insecure attachment. So can you taunt the baby? Does that help? <laughs> can you swear at the baby? Yeah. So have you been diagnosed by a, a professional as, yeah. as a borderline yeah. personality? And this is after that? decades of being like, well, you're not bipolar because you've never had a real manic episode. You're kind of cyclothymic, which they call bipolar three, because I get hypomanic, but um, very difficult to medicate and because very, very sensitive. And then you give me a tiny bit of a medication. I'm like a zombie. And they don't, nobody wants to do that. I mean, I have very smart doctors I always have. And my psychopharmacologist was always like, I don't, I don't want to give you that. Um, and in fact, when I first came to see him, and this was probably about four years ago, and I was like, I'm really, I just can't feel any joy, which they call anhedonia. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just so depressed. And I thought, oh, he's going to give me more antidepressants. He said, you're on too much medication. And he actually took me down. And they have to be very, very smart, these people. So what are you on now? I'm on a couple of um, antidepressants, and a couple of weeks ago, I went off my mood stabilizer because I had really bad side effects. I was on a new medication called Latuda, which is um, so new that when my insurance lapsed, I got to find out that it's $750 without insurance. What? There's no per month. There's no generic of it yet. So it's so new. I can't take Lamectal because I got the rash right away. I'm oh. allergic to sulfur drugs. I can't take, um, I tried Neurontin, it made me too sleepy and just... Dry mouth, I was on that one for a while too. Not myself. Neurontin, it didn't give me dry mouth, it just mm. made me just kind of dull and not mm. myself and I couldn't think properly and um, the Latuda seemed like it was a gift from God, honestly, and then a year in I suddenly started getting akathisia, do you know what that is? You have thrown out more big words <laughs> in five minutes than I've heard in my entire life. Um, I like Google is my friend. I like to understand. I want to know, you know, I want to understand. What was that last word that you said? And can I put a saddle on it? Because that was a big ass word. <laughs> Akathisia is when you have an inner restlessness. It's very unpleasant. And you feel like you want to move all the oh time. Oh my God, I've been getting that from the Lamictal. When, wow. I, when I try to sleep at night, I'm tired. I'm completely fine for like a half hour. And then all of a sudden, I feel like I want to put my foot through a wall. It's horrible. And I, my wife says I do this thing where I like swim yeah. in bed. Yeah, I that's just, what I was doing. None of my... Yeah. Oh, no, yes. I know what that is. But what dose are you on of Lamictal? Uh, it's an it's an augmented dose, so it's 200 milligrams. It's not for psychotic. You know, like a full dose would be 400 milligrams right. for psychosis. so you're psychosis. on a pretty low dose. Yeah, but it's... Because sometimes you can make it lower, and it, that's the way to get rid of the, the symptoms. But I was on such a low dose, and I was doing weird shit in my sleep and kind of walking around in my sleep. I mean, I've always been a kind of a weird histrionic sleeper where I talk and chat and speak in different languages <laughs> and tongues and stuff like that. But um, it got even weirder. So finally, I was just like, I, I can't, I can't do this. And you know, what's interesting is when I went off it, and it wasn't as bad as going off antidepressants, because I've been on pretty much every one in my long mental illness career. And, um, you know, Paxil was the worst to get off, by the way, really bad. With Brain zaps. Yeah. And um, paresthesia. Sorry, that's another big word. What's that? That's when your lips buzz. Really? Oh, it's just a, a festival of... Uh, 
happiness, isn't it? I've had my thighs buzz. Oh, yeah. Where it felt like my phone was on. Oh, like yeah. my phone was vibrating. That's what I could, that's akathisia. Yeah. It's, it, it's horrible. And then when you move, it actually kind of hurts. Like, it's not like you go, well, now's the time to clean my room because it's painful to move through that. I haven't At least that. it was for me. Yeah. Yeah. So, but uh, going off, it was not that bad. It was just a couple of days of kind of crying and feeling like I was 12. And then I got softer. And it was funny because I think that in detaching you from whatever it is in our brains that has a little seizure and makes us, you know, for me, it had to control like the anger or whatever the mood swings, whatever that thing was, in dulling that, it actually dulled some of my feelings. And I felt like I loved my kids more. I loved, just love everything more. I can feel more. So it's actually been really good. And so far, I haven't um, killed anybody. So... (laughs) I probably won't have to go on another mood stabilizer. Maybe I will someday, but I've I've run out of stuff. I mean, the only thing I could take is lithium, and that's not right for me. I've never been manic. I mean, lithium is mainly to control mania, mm-hmm. and I'm much more on the depressed side of the. And the when scale. you say you have hypomania, that's that's just below mania. It's it's really quite a deal below mania because you don't. It, you're not as grandiose as that. You know, I, I've never been in a situation where I've slept like four hours a night for a week or not slept much. I just get a little more productive and feel a little more entitled. I mean, it's very, it's kind of a, a pretty slight turn. I don't know. I haven't felt hypomanic for a really long time. I, I was told that uh, when I was on my first like three weeks of Lamictal that what I was, somebody was like, you're, you're hypomanic. Because um, I went back to looking at pornography, but in a way that was like super compulsive, like yeah. six hours in a row. Oh, that's a lot. Of, of like, and like categorizing, like, I'm going to want to look at this later. Let's put this in a folder. Yeah, yeah. And then three weeks later was like, delete, you know, couldn't give a shit. Oh, well, that's about good. It. Cause, yeah. You know, a lot of people uh, go to a specific group for that specific yeah. problem. I'm not saying that I don't go to a gazillion different support Me groups. Me too. I know. I'm surprised yeah. I haven't seen you at one of them. <laughs> but, yeah. But that was um, a an effect of the the beginning of a, a lot. Of, as you know, a lot of meds. There can be a honeymoon, for lack of a better word, period where there are side effects that then will go away. Or the opposite, which I had, where I had a year honeymoon and then suddenly the side effects were so bad, and I had to. If I took it at night, then I would get the akathisia while I was sleeping, which wasn't as bad. And remind me again, akathisia was the, it's the, the inner restless... restlessness, yeah, yeah. and um, f- feeling like you have to move, but then when you move, it's not you don't. It's unpleasant. It's yeah. like, ugh. I'm really glad I don't have that anymore. You, would you find yourself when you get it like, um, like your calves, like you want to you're pointing your toes, like relieves the stress in your calves? Yeah, like you have a like you have tension in your body, yeah. and this is like I mean I do yoga. Um, five or six times a week. So, you know, I do a lot of stuff for my mental health. So you're so. stretching. It's not like your body. Exactly. Right. It's not like my body is, is seizing up on me. I mean, it's, it's about the, it was about the medication. So how many different support groups do you go to regularly, re- regularly or semi-regularly? I'm one of, I, I'm in uh, probably about five. 
Good for you. And um, I don't know anyone else who would have, but you, Paul, who would say good for you. I heard somebody say, if you're not in three, you're in denial. You're lying to yourself. Yeah, yeah. I got told. The first one, well, you don't want me to be specific, but the first one I went to was for smoking cigarettes. Okay. And um, I was like, this is it. This is my only thing. And everyone was like, yeah, stick around. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you peel the onion, as they say, and they say more will be revealed, which I always think is... Um, wonderful slash disturbing yes it is but you know because you want to think you're done yeah Yeah. i mean at some point we have to be done with this whole and that was part of the thing in my marriage is that i have been working on myself for so many years because pain is a great motivator i mean if i didn't fall into a hole every couple of months i don't think i'd be motivated to be a better person i would be quite happy to just walk around and uh feel like everybody else feels but when you get in that kind of pain, you want to understand. I mean, for me, I want to understand what is this and how do I get out of it? Like, I want as many tools as possible because you never know which one is going to work to get you out of the hole. I would imagine, too, that your desire to want to understand human nature beyond your own had to have been lit by your experience with your grandmother. So the thing about borderlines is that supposedly we don't have empathy, but that's not exactly the way it is because borderline people aren't necessarily sociopaths or textbook narcissists it's just that we have a hard time reading people's facial expressions and again we're not autistic it's not that kind of uh, reading facial expressions it's just that a lot of the time it's hard for us to swing around and figure out what the other person is thinking and so in terms of my grandmother, I never knew what she was thinking. I mean, I had absolutely no idea what was going on in her head because she could turn on a dime. So I felt like that with most people in my life, probably until t- about the last year, where I really, you know, from doing this program at UCLA, I really am able to go, you know, I feel like you're mad at me right now. Are you mad at me? Like actually check in and figure out what is going on with people. I just... Is that DBT? Um, No, it's actually uh, called mentalization. There is a a little aspect of DBT to it, but the uh, the program is um, this guy, Peter, somebody started it in the 80s, so it's still relatively new, and it's called mentalization, and it's about being able to... Uh, being able to mentalize is like trying to figure out all the different things that the other person might be thinking that have nothing to do with what you're projecting on them, and it's incredibly helpful. Like when you start actually noticing yourself doing it. It's like, I did so much cognitive behavioral therapy. And there were so many years where I didn't act out at all. I mean, I was like the model citizen. And I was still going after my creative career. And and I was um, raising kids, and I had a great marriage. But I was suffering so much underneath. Um, I just behaviorally had modified everything. I wasn't smoking, I wasn't drinking. I didn't, you know, I was monogamous, blah, blah, blah. But underneath, to get at the underneath stuff, that's what this mentalization has been so good for. Because it's no point walking around like an automaton trying to do the right thing. If you're still suffering so much underneath, you want to get into the underlying causes of uh, why we think this way. I, I think one of the most helpful things is to realize people are probably thinking about themselves. Oh, completely. That's the first thing you learn. I mean, and It's not also, about you. No, it's so not about you. I mean, and that's a process of maturity. I mean, you're supposed to figure that out when you're 20. And I kind of did. I remember doing a, this training. It was like a, based on EST. It was an ontological training. And I really did figure out at that point 
that was like the beginning, the door cracked open a little bit to being aware and conscious. And before that, I was just completely running on ego. I mean, there was just fumes of ego for years and years. Um, but that was the first time I realized, oh, wait a minute, you mean everything's not about me? And you know, you're 20, that's kind of late to figure that out. I mean, my kids already even being you know, normally self-preoccupied like eight and nine-year-olds should be, they kind of have a sense that the entire world does not revolve around them. Even though they grew up in Malibu, they still have that sense. So I think that's that's a borderline thing too. We get kind of, um, our growth gets retarded in a way. Have you seen that video uh, that Marsha Linehan is in? Marsha Linehan yeah, is considered the, the, the expert because she is also um, has borderline personality disorder. And she disorder. came out and said that she was borderline so many years after she developed that DBT. Like even for her, she felt like there was a stigma and she didn't want to say. I've read a lot of her stuff online. Yeah, I have not seen video of her. The video is amazing. I posted it on my Facebook page, and I think we have a link on the on the website as well. If not, I'll, I'll when this airs, I'll, I'll I'll put it up there. Oh, great! I totally want to watch it. It's the most informative thing about um, borderline personality disorder that I that I've ever seen. Everybody should watch it. Uh, and one of the tips that they give. Um, you know, self-injury is a common thing. Yeah, with, that's one thing I didn't mention. Yeah. Have, yeah. Do you have a, a oh, history absolutely. of that? Yeah. Let's get in that in, in, in just a second. But the, the tip that I wanted oh, to I share that, that she had is because, you know, as you know, it's a way to release pain because there's so much right. inner pain that it's a way of physicalizing it and, and having it, you know, quote unquote, come out. Right. A tip that she gave is that uh, hold ice cubes. Oh, yeah. I've been doing that for years. Oh, okay. Yeah. I've been holding ice cubes for years. I've been um, throwing ice cubes in the bathtub for years. What does that do? Um, it releases uh, the... See, people self-harm because of a lot of different reasons, and sometimes you want to do it because you're dissociating, and it's a way to get you back into your body when you're dissociating, and that's more of the holding ice thing because the pain puts you back into your body, but sometimes it can be about the anger, and you've turned the anger inwards, and so you're you know, you're cutting or whatever. I'm not a cutter. I have different self-harm things, but um, I'm too squeamish to be a cutter. But um, uh, the ice, throwing the ice is you get the sound and you get the impact of it. And I've even taught my kids to do it if they're frustrated. Uh, water in the bathtub or no? No. Okay. So that you, so that the sound. I see, the clunking. Yeah, yeah. And you feel like you're releasing something. I mean, because you can punch a pillow. They tell you to punch a pillow, but... In some ways, I feel like, I mean, I've read in different places that that can actually just build it up and make you more enraged. I I punch seniors because I find <laughs> that most of them don't stay on their feet and there's a sense of accomplishment. I hate old people. <laughs> I don't know if it's because of my grandmother. Seriously? I really cannot stand old people. I did a seniors yoga class the other day because it was the only one I could get to. And I literally thought I was going to throw up just from the toenails alone. I just, I'm... <laughs> And it's terrible. It's a terrible, um, you know, it's a, I'm a bad person for this, but I just, I can't get with old people. Like people go, oh, people, they're so cute and they're so wise. No, no. I like old people as long as they don't remind me of my mom. I went to a support group a couple of weeks ago and about half the room reminded me of my mom. And I was like, I don't know if I can come back here. Right. And I'm sure these people are way more recovered than right. my mom was, but there, there's the outward signs of the talking a lot and 
you know, just kind of getting into your business and oh. invading your space. Yeah. And, and it was just very triggering. Yeah, that's me. that's the that's the thing with old people for me. I mean, I don't. I'm assuming it comes from that because my grandmother was very old um, when she had my mom. Even so, she I always remember she was always old. Um, it's not so much with my my mom. My mom is, um, you know, she's a lot more like a normal kind of codependent. You don't think that she uh, has borderline? No, my mom. Uh, you know, it's complicated because I feel like there is a tendency a little bit to pathologize everything. Like once you get into a group, it's like everything's this. It's like, oh, they're a narcissist or they're this. It's like people can have traits. Yeah. It's like someone can have borderline traits, but they may not necessarily be fully borderline or the same with narcissism or so many conditions. So I could say that my mother has codependent traits and that she definitely has a lot of opinions about what I should and shouldn't be doing and not in a normal kind of way. Like I've had to really fight to become myself. I mean, I moved 6,000 miles away for God's sake. It was a pretty, pretty radical move to say, leave me alone. <laughs> I like to say I moved to Los Angeles cause that's where I hit water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I get it. Keep going till your hat floats. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but do you feel like your your mom was an easier person to be around than than your grandmother? Yeah, and she was sweet when I was little. I just had more um, issues with her after I became a teenager because then I was like, oh, now you're around? Now you want to tell me how to live? Like, what happened a few years ago? You know, could you have picked me up from school one time so I didn't have to walk with that smelly older human? Like, could you have... T- Who? Grandmother. Oh, grandmother. Yeah. yeah. I mean... Because they just, they were working all the time and they didn't, you know, they didn't understand how important those things were to me and their presence was to me. And luckily my children are spoilt for that. I mean, I'm always around or dad's always around and they have no idea. And sometimes they whine about the separation. They're like, mommy, it makes me so sad that you and daddy are separated. I'm like, who's separated? I'm here. We're having breakfast. We're t- I'm, I live right in that room. Like, what is your problem? Like, you need to understand how lucky you are. Because we're staying there to raise the kids, you know, it's for them. But they probably miss seeing your affection with each other. We're still pretty affectionate. Yeah. I mean, not like, you know, we don't kiss on the lips or anything, but we hug and kiss on the cheek. Yeah. And Do you feel like you have more appreciation for your mom now that you're a mom and you know what goes into it? Sadly, no. No, no, I didn't have that big resurgence that I lo- I know a lot of moms have that where then they're like, Oh, my mom, she did her best. And I, I kind of got more resentful once I had children. I, you know, I appreciate your honesty because <laughs> I know there's going to be people that are going to have some problems with you. you I know? don't want, uh, people and, are always going to have problems with me. I can't, I can't worry about that. Yeah. Um, I'm just pretending that, it's you and I in a room and no one's ever going to hear this it. This is great. You know, we did an episode with Ted Lyde who said many of the same things that you said about being a parent. And, yeah. and I got some emails from people that were like, fuck that guy. And, and I will probably get a couple of emails from people that that will say that about you but uh-huh. i appreciate that you are you are owning your inner life and you're not sugarcoating it because i know there's also going to be people that are going to email and say i feel exactly the way she does yeah yeah well that's why people read my blog and they're just like i mean i feel like my blog is like this is for you it's like a public service because people do sugarcoat it and i adore my kids if i didn't adore my kids i wouldn't care 
If I didn't care, it would be easier. I'd just be like, watch video games all day. See if I care. I don't give a shit. Brush your teeth or don't. Who cares? But it's because you care that it's so difficult. So you can accuse me of anything you want, but you can't accuse me of not caring. You know, that's why it's difficult. But in terms of my mother, I was really hoping that I would understand her more once I had kids, but it just hasn't really happened. I mean, you know, again, because I've had a lot of therapy, I recently went back to Australia and visited them. That's where they live. And it was much, much better. I mean, I really saw a huge difference. It's like, if you want to know if your therapy's working, go be around your family. Yeah. And you'll, you'll see right away how far you've come. Or, or how take a far vacation it, with your spouse. Yeah, yeah, hmm. yeah. Well, we didn't really have that. We, you know, this you was lived the, in Malibu. Where do you go to vacation? Yeah, no, that's true. No, but when we, you know, that was one of the problems with being married is that, excuse me, we never had any problems. We literally had no conflicts. I mean, I was 23 when we met. So I was just like, oh, my God, like I just put him up on a pedestal for 10 years. And then once we started actually having conflicts, there was no structure to resolve them. There was no people would say, oh, you know, relationship is work. And we would be like, what are they talking about? Because it was no work for us. We just adored each other. So it's actually good to have those conflicts. If you go on a vacation with your spouse or whatever, those are the people that stay together. But for us, by the time we got to therapy, it was like way too late. Because you didn't feel like you had ways to communicate what you no. were feeling to each other. Without, and there was so much under the bridge that it was like, exactly. I don't even want to begin this project because there's eight miles of paperwork and I'd rather yeah. just start another one clean. Yeah. I mean, I think that's more how I felt. I can't speak for how he felt, but... I think at the time, too, I hadn't um, started this program. So everything he he brought in a list into therapy about all these things that kind of were wrong with me. And I just couldn't assimilate it. I mean, I was crying my eyes out. And now you could sit with me and you could actually tell me all this stuff about myself and I would own it. I would be like, yeah, it's true. I talk too much. And yeah, wow, it must have been really difficult living with me and not knowing if you were going to come home and I'd be swinging from the chandelier on a noose. You know, that must have been really difficult for you. But at the time, it was just like, oh, my God, he knows I'm a bad person. I mean, that's one of the things about, you know, having this problem with your perception is that you can't take even a little bit of criticism. So, um, you know, it's a shame. It's a shame we couldn't make it work for the kids. What are the addictions that you struggle with? Um, if you're comfortable, I, um, I am addicted to everything. I, I really feel like, what are the ones that, that bring you the most difficulty? I don't, I don't have any right now. Cause I cut them all out. I don't drink alcohol anymore. I don't take drugs. I don't eat sugar. I'm off sugar for like, um, one of my good friends got cancer and I started, again, Googling and found out the link between white sugar and cancer. And um, I've recently fallen back into one of my other addictions, which is, oh, so horrifying. I don't know. I don't know. I can't even believe it. I had six years, nine months and 23 days off cigarettes. And I had a moment in my relationship where I was just like, I'm either going to really self-harm which I hadn't done in a long time, or I'm going to smoke because I know if I smoke, it's going to get rid of it. And I started to smoke. And so now I smoke five cigarettes a day. I'm managing it and, and white knuckling it from each one cigarette to the next. How were you going to uh, self-harm yourself? Um, self-harm yourself. Self-harm yourself. Um, well, I, um, 
used to beat myself. And um, in fact, when I was hospitalized last year, I um, had punched myself in the face, in, in the eyes. It's horrible. That's so sad. I know. I know. I'm so gorgeous. How could you possibly <laughs> mess with this face? <laughs> and I'm not even hypermanic right now, and I'm telling you that. No, it's it's just, you know, it's just coping mechanisms, stress exceeding coping mechanisms. Yeah. And then it's like, that's the best you can do at the time. What is the goal when you're punching yourself in the face? Is it to feel a certain feeling or to get a physical result that you can look at? For me, it was penance. It was like, you deserve this. You know, I was uh, hit as a child. Um, not, I can't say I was like physically abused because it didn't happen often enough. But my dad had an explosive temper and he drank a lot. And I got hit, you know, sporadically. And it was like always waiting for the other shoe to drop. And I think it has something tied in with that, where it feels, it feels like I deserve it. It feels familiar. And then, like I said, sometimes it's about not wanting to dissociate. And sometimes it's about just anger that you can't, you know, it's like locked in there and you can't get it out. What does it look like when you dissociate? And why do you think, um, what triggers dissociating? Um, it's very complicated, you know. It's something to do with a mechanism that you develop in childhood, and then um, it becomes, and it's something that can often help you in childhood. It's uh, it's a numbness. It's a feeling of unreality. You're not really there. It happens to me from time to time. Sometimes I do it on purpose. Are you just thinking about another place in time, no. or what? What describe it? Describe it. It's like you're. You just have no feelings suddenly. You just have no, you're just numb. You're just like going through the motions, but everything's kind of unreal. Does it happen to you or is it something you choose to do? It's both. Can you give me an example? Um, Yeah, it happened in the car with my kids. Um, They were, I was feeling so trapped in the car with them. They were just going crazy and crying. One of my kids was crying for half an hour because the other kid took his chip bag. And it was just after I'd gone off my medication. So I just wasn't um, in a good space. And uh, and then I was so worried. I thought, God, is this the new normal? Is this what my life's going to be like not on this medication? Because like if I stay centered, like all of their hysteria, it does come come down eventually. But if I don't stay centered and I start screaming or freaking out, then it just escalates beyond. And I don't want them to grow up like that. Obviously, I don't want to be my father and be like this ragey, whatever, Cruella de Vil. Um, but um, the one thing that I do that my father never did is that I apologize and I own it and I clean it up. And this and the repair is very important for kids to see you go, mommy made a mistake. I made a really big mistake. I raised my voice. I swore, you know, I apologize. I feel really bad about it. And then that's it, because I'm not going to beat myself up about it forever. And what a great example for them. I think so, because they do, you know, one of my kids is specifically more hard on himself. And so hopefully he'll see that example, because I don't, I, I mean, the biggest, not, you don't have kids, right? Mm-mm. Yeah, good choice. <laughs> yeah, because one of the things that you just, that horrifies you, that I just, I think I must have been over-medicated when I decided to have kids, because... I can't believe I didn't think about, like, maybe they'll inherit all of my craziness. Like, I just didn't even, I was just like, oh, my God, come inside me. I mean, just like a moron. And and now, 
it's like, God, I really worry about that. And you see that and you just think, oh, my God, is it going to be a little baby alcoholic? Like, what's it going to be? <laughs> I get a lot of emails from, from people that worry about passing their they're crazy onto their onto their kids, but um, I don't think anybody should judge themselves for for doing that because you know I think people when they do confront their battles head on, they really become an asset to society because they we have to learn tools to survive, but those tools then are available for us to deal with everyday life, and they can really improve our relationships with people we can and i'm not telling you anything you don't know, know already but you know we can be of service to people in a way that somebody who hasn't experienced the crazy roller coaster maybe can't but the not knowing if your kid is going to be one of the ones that survives that addiction or that mental illness i can totally understand that wanting to have kids and that's one of the things i think that has kept me from ever wanting to have kids is is that feeling of oh if they're going to feel like i do I just can't right. do that to somebody. Yeah, you just can't bear it. the thought of them suffering. Is just you just can't bear it. I mean, it's 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 unbearable to think about it. But I agree with what you're saying because it's a very profound process, and I do think often that it's sometimes. I'm not going to say often. I sometimes think it's a gift that we get to do all of this kind of work because it is really profound and. If you can get that awareness, you you can be more than the average schlub just sitting in their car going to their nine to five, like completely, you know, asleep at the wheel. And there's a lot to be gained from that. I mean, you get beautiful moments when you're that aware, really? that awake. And, and my favorite are the beautiful moments that are simple, that don't require the universe doing something exactly above and beyond for me, you know, just a moment of, you know, maybe having a nice lunch with a friend where you're there for them and you just all of a sudden feel this sense of purpose and that you're where you're supposed to be in the universe. Right. Which, or just having a cup of tea and looking at, you know, I mean, I get to look Der at Spiegel. the ocean. Yeah, Der Spiegel. Whacking off to Der Spiegel. <laughs> um, no, I mean, for me, I get to look at the ocean. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm very lucky, but... You know, sometimes that's how I know sometimes when I'm depressed because I'm looking at the ocean and there's nothing. I mean, there's nothing going on. I'm just like, meh, more ocean. So what? <laughs> What's it all mean? It's just wet. Yeah, fuck that. Yeah. Fuck those dolphins, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Flaunting their joy and their freedom in front of me. Yeah, what makes them so happy? I mean, are they genetically happy? Were they raised better than I was? They're probably happy that they're not tuna. <laughs> That's what drives them. Except in Japan. Yeah. Where it doesn't make a difference. Um, did we miss anything in childhood? Any? I, you know, the, the, the subject of attention is interesting because I am um, such an uh, extrovert and such an exhibitionist. And I don't think there's enough attention on earth available for me at every, any given moment. And it's... Uh, something I just cannot blame on my parents because I know that I was like that even at two years old. I would always be coming up to strangers, blah, 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 blah. I got one kid like that who'll just talk to anyone about anything. He will tell you anything you want to know and a lot of things you don't. And it's absolutely adorable. And, you know, you don't want to squash that because uh, it's sweet. It's part of his personality. But in terms of getting enough attention, I don't know that 
I, I don't know what yeah. another upbringing would have done. But yeah, I mean, I didn't get diddled or anything, thank God. And, and I just want to um, clarify about the, you know, wanting to know the, the, the stuff about uh, childhood and the and the attention and stuff. It's not to blame the parents because oftentimes the parents can be really great, but maybe we're a super sensitive kid that we misinterprets are. something. Absolutely. And then we let it kind of shame us or whatever. And it's it's not important who is to to blame. What's important is how it made us feel and how we deal with that thing that's kind of tattooed on our soul. So um I know I get emails sometimes from from parents that feel like I'm I'm looking to to blame them, and there, and there are certainly times that I am, but mostly I, I just really want to explore those messages that we put into ourselves and those feelings that that we can't shake that seem to so often spring from stuff that happened to us when 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 we were kids. But there is a certain point where if you're still blaming your parents, you're not doing your work because yeah. obviously you're you're an adult now and that's your part is that you have to get over it. And you know, work, when, can we can we say uh, work through it? Work through it. Get over yeah. it. Yeah. Pull your socks up. Cuz I fucking hate that. I hate that phrase I get know. over it cuz I had pull your socks up. I hate that. That's a very Australian thing. Pull your socks up? Yeah, all right. I'll, I'll get you guys right don't on have, that. You don't, you don't have a silly word for socks? It seems like, no. you know, pull your jimmies up. No. <laughs> pull your johnnies on. Yeah. No, they're just socks. Um, but I think being a parent, that's one thing. Whereas it didn't specifically, I don't feel, bring me closer to my mother. I did understand more about, you can't blame your parents for stuff because there's so much that you do inadvertently all the time. Even if you're really conscious and you're trying really hard um, to implant these ideas into your kids. You just, you, they're like little sponges. You don't know what they're going to pick up. So it's frightening. It's a, it's a lot of responsibility. And, and I don't think any parent is physically, mentally, emotionally capable of giving any child everything that they need. They're not supposed to. Otherwise, what would you write about? <laughs> <laughs> One of the, the traits I've heard of uh, people with uh, borderline personality um, is uh, they're highly manipulative. How aware are you of that trait in yourself and where do you find it expressing yourself? Do you, uh, do you find yourself um, being manipulative? That's a really, really tough one. That was one that I really had to pause over and think, am I really borderline? And ultimately, like I said, I didn't make the diagnosis. It was made for me by people who are medical professionals who I trust. Um, but, uh, I didn't understand that because I don't think of myself as being manipulative at all. I mean, I'm so, what you see is what you get and so wear my heart on my sleeve and I'm so obvious. I mean, I'm so transparent. Um, and I know that because I have a kid who is a manipulator who I realized my younger son, when he was about three, I was like, Oh my God, this kid is manipulating me. Like I, I, it wouldn't, it doesn't even occur to me that someone is manipulating me. And my ex-husband is very manipulative. Like he knows how to get you where he wants you. And I just have none of that. However, there's an unconscious manipulation that happens with borderlines because we're so afraid of being left. And so sometimes I will look over my texts, for example, with, um, say this guy I'm seeing who I just completely adore. And um, I'll look at the text and I'll be like, oh, those are really borderline-y. 
like there's something kind of semi-manipulative about it, but it's not, for me, it's not conscious. Um, it's not, it just has to do with like not wanting to be left or I'll say to him, like after the fact, I'll be like, I'm sorry, that was kind of manipulative. And he'll say, I know. So do you feel like it's more of a you positioning yourself to not be hurt yes. than, than you trying yes. to change or fool that person? Yes. And I think that's the kind of misconception. And I've really found that out because group therapy is part of it. And I'm sitting with five or six other borderline women when they show up. Um, and, and by the way, some people have a real problem with being called borderline. Yeah, even though it's easier, even though it, no, 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 I mean, even they prefer to say, even though it's so wordy, people who meet the criteria for borderline personality yeah, disorder. That's what Marsha Linehan um, says instead of calling people borderline, right. because some people feel like that is summing up their entirety as that's who you are instead of that's a part of yourself. Yeah, I mean, I understand that definitely. And um, there's also in the DSM-5 now they're calling it emotional dysregulation disorder, which some of the girls in my group prefer um, but I, it's just for the sake of time. I'm just kind of and I uh, get it. making it shorter. I, I mean, I would hope, I would pray that people wouldn't just classify me as, oh, that borderline. But I think, I, you know, like I said, I've just done so much different creative work. It's like this is just one facet, one thing that, um, you know, it, I put it in the foreword of my book to understand more of my journey, but that I'd been writing for like 10 years. It's like none of that stuff really changed. It was just gave it kind of like a framework to understand why I reacted to certain things the way I did. Um, but I see it in this group, this manipulation, and it's so fascinating because it's not conscious. I really think that People who meet the criteria for borderline personality <laughs> disorder get a bad rap about that because really they're just trying to, you know, there's one in particular, one girl, she's in the hospital right now, you know, routinely people go into the psych ward and whatever. Um, and she just seems so manipulative, but I can see through it. I know it's just because she doesn't she doesn't have attention she's not attached she hasn't found secure attachment within herself which is what i'm working on is that i read about it online it's called non-dual awareness that's what some people call it and it's just that part of you that's like the observer and once you get a relationship with that part of you hopefully you're not as intent on trying to get it all the time from everyone around you but I understand her, I understand, and I have empathy for her. But if you didn't know what she goes through and how that she just tried to kill herself a couple of weeks ago, um, you would think, oh, wow, she's really manipulative. Like, what's wrong with her? Mm -hmm. Do you Have you ever been to a psych ward? Yeah, just once last year. Can you that was the only that? time. No, it's in the book. I'm not letting that out. you got to buy People. the book to, to, to read about that. It's very funny. Is it? Yeah, I was writing the entire time. I mean, it was really, really funny. And um, and it was great because I'd never hit that bottom, you know, my whole life. I was, I've never been hospitalized. I've never had a suicide attempt. And I didn't make a suicide attempt. Um, I had what you could probably call it a suicidal gesture. Um, but I didn't lose my sobriety or anything. It was just like I just flipped out. And, um, Did and you got, commit, your, commit yourself? 
I got put on a hold, but I didn't know at the time that it was a hold. I thought I thought I was free to go until I saw the sign as the door closed, warning flight risk. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I thought I was in here voluntarily. Um, but it was good. I was in there for like four days and um, it was very important. It was definitely the beginning of, I was like the mayor of the mental ward. It's all in the book. I was just like all up in everybody else's problems, trying to fix everybody. And um, it gave me a lot of perspective. And there, you know, I counted the number of PhDs at a certain point. I mean, there were, there was a woman who had two PhDs and almost everybody there had some crazy like masters or PhD or, I mean, this stuff has nothing to do with intelligence. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. So I really got that. Is there uh, anything else that you you'd like to uh, to touch on before? And and we'll we'll um, give a shout out to your book and your blog and your and your website and everything. Um, no, that's all. The, I'm just really um, uh, thank you for having me. I really believe in what you're doing here. Thank you. It's good. And when I heard about it, I was like, oh please, I'm like a perfect <laughs> fit for this thing. I've been training all my life for this podcast. Did did you get a chance to write any fears or I did loves? actually. Would you would you like to do those? Sure. I'm going to be reading the fears of a listener uh, named Dana. So go ahead. Nice. Let you start. Okay. I've always had a fear of big metal objects, rusty cranes, pipes, and also silos. Any kind of industrial part of town with lots of mechanical objects and steam coming out really freak me out. I don't know if I'm afraid the pipes will burst or the objects will fall on me, but I used to have to close my eyes passing them on the road as a kid. Now I'm driving, so I can't close my eyes. That's fantastic, and that's a first. Um, I always feel like that when I walk by propane tanks. Oh, yeah. I get very nervous. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we might just be neurotic. Uh, definitely. Dana says, I'm just now at the age uh, of 20 getting to see my parents' marriage fall apart. I'm not just afraid of them getting divorced for the obvious reasons that it'll suck, but also because all of my friends' parents have been divorced for years and they'll be completely justified in telling me to suck it up and go fuck myself when I try to milk sympathy from them. Funny. Pull your socks up, Dana. <laughs> They'll tell you. God forbid. Um, I have a pretty nasty fear of heights. My ex-husband made me go to the top of the Eiffel Tower, and I'm surprised the photo we took at the top wasn't blurry because I was shaking really hard. I don't know why I feel safer on heights if I hold on to a person. It's not like they're going to be able to stay up if the building collapses. <laughs> Uh, I'm afraid that I need the sympathy so badly that the thought of theoretically not having it is enough to make me fearful. I imagine a woman figuring that out about me, and I can't imagine it'd make her think of me as anything else but an overly sensitive, unfuckable Nancy boy. I guess she's gay. Gotcha. Yeah, I got a little thrown by the genders there. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um... I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to stop smoking again. I just started up after six years, nine months, and 23 days. And yes, I was counting because I had an app. <laughs> I know I know friends that have that app. Yeah. Uh, Good luck to them. I'm afraid that I'm going to have a child when I'm uh, in my early 20s and penniless and not being able to provide for it or myself and of being too crippled by the sadness of having proven my parents right about me being a loser to pay any attention to raising it. I love how... Uh, how personal and detailed her fears are that that always makes for and yours as well it uh, it always makes for for a great uh, fear list thank you it is it is hard to hear though because you just to think of someone that young already kind of 
catastrophizing about this future children she hasn't even had yet. Yes. You know, it's kind of like, oh, honey, please, no. Um, I'm afraid my kids will end up mentally ill, anything from alcoholic to heroin addicts to suicidal and depressed, which on the bright side does put me in a good position to help them. Uh, and the other plus is if they're heroin addicts, there's a good chance they'll start a band. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid that having isolated for the past two years means that when my depression finally eases up, I'll step foot into a world that cares even less about me than it did when I first decided to hide from it. Um, I'm afraid my kids will be felons and then will be unable to get a job. Keep in mind, my kids are currently eight and nine. (laughs) Uh, My parents really want me to have children. I'm just afraid that my kids will represent them. My kids will resent them for making me the person I am as much as I resent my grandparents for making my parents so fucked up because if that does happen, they'll be sorely disappointed by the lack of nursing home calls they'll receive. Ouch. These are awesome. Um, I'm afraid of what will happen if I have to move out of the house I share with my ex-husband as we raise our kids together. I worry about what the impact will be on the kids if we're living apart and they truly feel the cost of our separation. But no doubt there will be an iPad app for that by the time that happens. (laughs) That's great. Uh, I'm afraid that coming out to my parents about being molested as a child uh, made my mom and dad's problems with anxiety and depression infinitely worse. And there's not a day where I don't regret telling them, oh, that breaks my heart. Never, never regret telling your parents that. Any good parent would want to know that that happened to their child. And stop taking the burden uh, of your parents emotionally being overwhelmed. They, If they want help, they can get it. They're adults. They know that help is available. It sounds like she's definitely just taking overall emotionally way too much responsibility for her parents. I want to encourage Dana to read that article that uh, Alan Rappaport wrote about co-narcissism. Co-narcissism. Yeah, I listened to that on your show. It's brilliant. It's it's one of the most profound articles I've ever I've ever read. Yeah. And the mini episode is just me reading the article and yeah. um it when I read it I was like everything was explained for me, the, why I do the things that I do, and it was so I was able to have compassion for myself and for my parents because I realized these are real things; these mm. are actual things that we're all battling. This is not personal, right? Yeah. Well, Dana's a little young to know it's not personal. Yeah. Sadly, um, I'm afraid of the apocalypse of the Earth. <laughs> <laughs> Just keep it real simple. Um, I often have dreams that are taking place during the apocalypse some kind of catastrophic event, and usually everyone is armed and it's Lord of the Flies. Ironically, I'm not one of those doomsday prep people, and if something happened right now, I'd have about one tin of smoked trout and one tub of sparklets water to get my kids and I through the rest of our lives. (laughs) That's awesome. Uh, Dana's last one is, I'm afraid that I'll always be a wicked downer. I'm taking it. She's, She's from the East Coast. Yeah, sounds like Boston. Um, let me try to work which one. Oh, here's okay. I'm just going to read one more, which is, uh, my biggest fear is of being abandoned. I endure this every day as I'm the kind of person that feels abandoned when someone leaves the room. <laughs> That's great. Do you want to go to loves? Loves. Do you sure. have loves? Yeah, I have my loves. I'm going to be doing improvising my loves because I couldn't find, um, the list of listener loves that I, that I had. Okay. 
Um, I love how my younger son talks. He says W for R and L. So even when he's really mad, I have a hard time not laughing because sometimes he says things like, weave me a wone. <laughs> that's, that's very cute. He's so cute. Um, I love having a guest on that addresses an issue that we haven't had a lot of on the on the podcast, but specifically uh, you talking about uh, having borderline personality disorder. Awesome. Thank you. I love my older son's buck teeth. They're so fucking cute, but he's getting braces at some point soon. I'm sure he'll complain about them for every minute of every year that he has them because he's not a tough kid. Um, I love that uh, I have this rented space now and my podcast feels somehow just a tiny bit more official that's awesome that is exciting okay i love sex i love everything about fucking even the awkward weird fumbling bits sometimes i think i should have been in porn because i could fuck all day every day and i'm not just saying that to get new male fans it's true um i dug deep for this one uh, i love that you admitted that because i think a lot of people are afraid of well, women especially we yeah. want to empower women in your sexuality especially if you're late 30s or in your 40s 50s older you got to own that shit now and you're at your peak right We're peaking Isn't it? absolutely as we speak i'm peaking no yes. not really <laughs> um i love uh that feeling of when i haven't had any caffeine for the first two or three hours then i'm up and i do have that cup of caffeine it affects me uh, more deeply, almost like when I used to do a bong hit first thing in the morning. It's oh, like it's free it's, rush. It's hitting a clean slate, and it just feel it feels like I, I'm squeezing more out of it than <laughs> than I would if I had drank it first thing in the morning. Spoken like a true addict. Yeah, and I'm and I'm going to get one when when we're done, and I, I can't know. wait. Now I want a coffee too. Um, I love my oatmeal in the morning. I make it with blueberries, shredded unsweetened coconut and agave. And since I stopped eating sugar more than a year ago, I have literally nothing left. This is all I have left is this half sweet oatmeal. Uh, I love walking out into our front yard and picking a fresh vegetable and making an omelet out of it. Mm. I love the innocent look in my children's eyes as they make jokes about penises. (laughs) Another thing, so common for boys, we are totally on. It doesn't change once once we no, get older. Maybe eases, that. maybe eases once we we get I don't older. Know. All the guys I date are pretty obsessed with their cocks. I've yeah. noticed. Anyway, uh, uh, well, speaking of that, I'm I love that um, bit by bit, tiny bit by tiny bit, I get more comfortable with my genitalia. This is good. Yeah, I love babies. I love babies. Um, I don't want another one. And I might kill myself if I got pregnant right now. But when I see those chubby faces and legs, I just want to eat them. <laughs> uh, that's a really common thing that, mm. I, that I hear friends and people share is that there is like a desire to eat that toddler's face. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. To just the... the, 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 the There's an article only a few days ago that they actually scientifically figured out what it is, and it actually stimulates the same part of your brain that's um, about uh, hunger and satiating your hunger. There's actually a scientific Mm. basis for wanting to eat a baby. That that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, I love how ridiculous my dogs are when they hear a noise 
or a fly and they both go hide either behind my wife's computer or behind the toilet. Cute. Um, I love the way my two dogs kiss each other when they've been apart for any reason. Oh, that's adorable. Yeah. One's a Labradoodle and she's brilliant. And the other one is a Cocker Terry Doodle something and he's not too bright, but they love each other. That's sweet. I, I love seeing the relationship between dogs. It's our, so cute. Our little guy is kind of obsessed with our, our the female dog who's a little bigger and um, she's always trotting around the house and I love when he trots next to her and is just constantly looking at, so up, at cute. up at her. I just love that. I love that kind of affection and admiration. They're a pack. Yeah. It's adorable. Um, okay. How about this one? I love uh, being the center of attention, except I have a bit of social anxiety at the thought of someone drawing attention to me when I'm not ready for it. I don't like the thought of it, but in reality, when I get to be on stage or in front of people where all eyes are on me and people are listening, I'm totally at ease and happy, sometimes more than when I'm alone. I know that feeling. It's the opposite of abandonment. Yeah. <laughs> it, and it's like, uh, I feel a calm come over me, like this is where I'm supposed to be. Finally, everybody has a chance to see what might be special about me. Isn't that and, funny? And it, yet it's kind of pathetic at the same time. <laughs> Just a tad. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe more than pathetic, but I don't know. No, The world no. needs performers. It's a gift. It's a gift yeah. to give people, to make people laugh. I just like making them cry as well, so stand-up's not exactly the right forum for me anymore. Yeah. Uh, Susanna, thank you so much um, for thank sharing you. your, your, your life with us and... Um, and you're being so frank about things that I think some people um, would be afraid to say for fear of coming off as um, dislikable or whatever. I, I love that you, you own your inner life. I, I think you. that's a great example. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Sometimes and, it's harder in a podcast because people can't see me smiling. So, um, But anyway, you your, can't the, really worry the, about that. The web address of your blog? MalibuMom.com. Um, and your book is called I'll Be the Death of Me. Yes. It's available on Amazon. Yes. Got great reviews. Yes. It, yes. And uh, anything else that you'd like to plug? No, really just buy my book and uh, read the blog and um, then buy my book again. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. I really enjoyed that. And I hope you guys found that as enlightening as I did. I was really... Uh, Glad to get uh, a guest on to uh, help enlighten us about what it's like uh, to live with a borderline personality disorder. And uh, many thanks to uh, to Susanna. Um, and be, be sure to go check that blog out that, uh, that she writes. Um, before we get to the... Uh, two surveys that uh, that I have to read and want to remind you guys there's a couple of different ways to support the show if you're so inclined you can uh, go to the website mentalpod.com also that's the twitter name you can follow me at um, good way to uh, find out updates about the show or maybe articles that I've read that I like I will often retweet that stuff um, go to uh, mentalpod.com and um, you can either give a one-time PayPal donation or sign up for a recurring monthly donation, which means uh, the world to me. It really helps keep this this uh, show going. Um, you can sign up for as little as five bucks a month, and then uh, you don't have to worry. Once you set it up, it just uh, kicks me five bucks a month. You don't have to change anything until you decide to cancel, which hopefully you never will. Um, who knows? Maybe you'll turn into a bad person 
and you'll cancel it. And then there you will be sitting by your fireplace in all your awfulness. Um, <laughs> now I'm feeling the need to apologize to anybody that doesn't think that's a joke. Um, you can, uh, yeah, once you set it up until you decide to cancel it or your uh, credit card expires, um, you don't have to do anything. So um, big, big shout out to those of you that are monthly donors and have uh, have given single donations as well. Um you can also support us by writing something nice at iTunes, giving us a good rating, or spreading the word through social media. All right, let's get to these two surveys. They're both happy moments uh, surveys, and they're both bittersweet, and I think that's what I kind of liked um, about them. This first one is filled out by a guy who calls himself Lyle, and he writes, I remember clearly the sound and feel of the buzz on my back and the tingle in my ears from the vibration from the tires on the road. I'm lying on my back, wedged behind the seat of our Ford sedan. This was the late 60s, and I'm about five years old. My sister is wedged in the back window, sleeping, as we are on a road trip to visit my grandparents. The smell of cigarette smoke fills the air as my dad takes another drag from his Paul Mall. He rolls down the window, and the smoke is replaced by the sweet smell of rain and sage from the desert. A storm has passed by, and I can still hear the distant thunder from far away. I close my eyes and try to fall asleep, but the hum from the road and the buzzing in my ears keeps me awake. As I start to drift off, I hear the slow song come on the radio, and Elvis is singing about a boy dying in a ghetto. I start to cry, not because the song is so sad, but because I am so happy and safe, and because I realize, even at that young age, that that will probably be the happiest I will ever be. Thank you for that, Lyle. And then this last one is from Allison. Um, she writes, My mom was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's when I was 19. I'm 23 now, and my mom is living in a nursing home. We can't bring her home for fear of it being a trigger for her. Her condition is slowly getting worse, and a lot of the time she can be closed off or not able to form coherent thoughts and sentences. One night when I was getting her ready for bed, I sat down next to her and leaned on her shoulder like I used to when I was little. When I do this now, she usually laughs or just looks at me, but this time she put one arm around me and started twirling and playing with my hair like she used to do. I had to try so hard not to burst into tears on the spot. I was so happy to have that tiny piece of her back to normal, even if it was just for a few minutes. Wow, that one, that one really stuck with me when I read that. I was like, oh my God, that is... So beautiful and painful all at the same time. That's like that's like a lifetime of feeling packed into ten seconds. Thank you for that, Allison. That uh, really moved me. And uh, thank you guys all for supporting the show. And um, I don't know. Sometimes I'm just speechless. I'm just speechless. I feel so right with the universe when I do this show and so connected to you guys and everything that I've been through in my life seems okay and seems like it was meant to be and there's just nothing better than that feeling and any of you that are out there stuck know that it doesn't always have to be that way um if we reach out for help things can change you know I'd be dead if I hadn't asked for help so if you enjoy this podcast this is a direct result of a scared 
40-year-old man putting up his hand and saying, somebody please help me. I don't know. I don't know how to do this on my own. So I, I hope you take that plunge if you're afraid to do it. And not only saved my life, but he gave me a life. And um, that's there for you too, if you're, if you're willing. And know that you're not alone. You're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.